Welcome to Ophthalmology and Beyond, the Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society's podcast. Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society is the largest state association of 3000 ophthalmologists from Western Indian state of Maharashtra. This podcast is by members of MOS for the ophthalmologist community of the world covering a broad range of topics concerning the science, art and practice of ophthalmology and ophthalmologists. This series is an initiative under the current leadership of MOS Honorary President Dr Jignesh Daswala Honorary Secretary Dr Rajesh Joshi Honorary Treasurer Dr Rajiv Mundra and Chairman Scientific Committee Dr Ragini Parekh Hope you like this series Do remember to follow it on your favorite podcast app You may send your feedback to MOS Secretary 7 at gmail.com. Happy listening. Welcome to the 10th episode of Ophthalmology and Beyond the MOS podcast. This episode features journal club meeting held in the month of march 2022 to discuss a article long term outcomes of amniotic membrane treatment in acute steven johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis by swapna shanbag et al published in the journal ocular surface july 2020 issue good evening everybody uh welcome to the 6th journal club meeting of maharashtra ophthalmic society and today is a very interesting topic on ocular surface uh on the management of acute long term outcome of amniotic membrane treatment in acute sjs and today we have very august faculty as a discussant uh dr geeta ayer from shankar netrale she has got immense uh experience on ocular surface uh, problems and it would be a treat uh, to hear her uh, discuss this article and today we have another august uh, discussant is uh, swapna shanbag who has uh, penned this article today the article which we are going to discuss and uh, i will uh, hand over to dr parul deshpande who because of her we are doing this journal club beautifully and she is the person behind it who has managed it so well so over to you parul uh, thank you Vish- uh, vaishal uh, so i welcome dr geeta ma'am and dr swapna shanbag and i thank them for accepting this invitation uh, on behalf of mos so without wasting much of time as we all know that uh, the sjs and tn can result into severe cicatrizing ocular surface disease and this could really affect uh, quality of life of uh, our patients and uh, uh, we have a very small window of opportunity in the acute stage of steven johnson syndrome where we where uh, uh, an appropriate management probably could uh, uh, help us Uh, not have a, a complete vision loss and blindness in these patients and have a very good normal life in these uh, patients so with this i think we will move over to the use of amniotic membrane in the acute stage of sjs and uh, toxic epidermal uh, necrolysis and uh, we have a presenter uh, from aurangabad so i would hand over to dr uh, sulva uh, jawar who is the a uh, professor at uh, the government medical college uh, aurangabad and uh, with her her student who is going to present here so uh, dr shilva over to you and uh, yeah thank you thank you dr dr aditya sen is going to present today yeah uh, thank you dr parul and first of all i would like to thank this uh, mos team dr jignesh daswala dr ragini parekh ma'am 
and Dr. Rajesh Joshi sir, Dr. Vaishal and wonderfully coordinated by Dr. Parul. Uh, this is such a beneficial academic activity taken up by the MOS team and very beneficial for the PGs as well as consultants here. I would also like to welcome the panelist, Dr. Uh, Sapna Shanbagh, who is, uh, we are pleased that she's also the author of the uh, article that is being presented today. And she is a consultant, cornea and anterior segment services at LVPI Hyderabad. And her research, it forms mainly on uh, diseases of ocular surface, such as limbus uh, stem cell deficiency, ocular chemical burns, SJS, and mucous member, membrane uh, pemphigoid. Also, we have a uh, most eminent expert here, Dr. Geeta Ayer, um, who is a senior consultant in ocular surface clinic and uh, the cornea services, Shankara Netrale. And uh, with her extensive work on the management of chronic ocular sequelae of uh, SJS syndrome, with an aim to prevent these, basically, their occurrence and deterioration of the sequelae, as well as understanding the immunopathology of this disease. So welcome, ma'am. And um, the, thanks once again for the MOS team. I would now like to also thank the panelists here, the statisticians. I think they haven't joined yet. Um, that is Dr. Sunny Sengupta and Dr. Manindra Setia. So I would like to introduce my PG student, Dr. Aditya Sane. He's a third year PG student at GMC Aurangabad. And over to you, Aditya, for the uh, article from the journal Ocular Surface. So um, uh, yeah, start Aditya. Uh, good evening, respected teachers. First of all, I would like to thank Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society to give me an opportunity to present in an uh, e-journal reading club. Today's topic of discussion is an article by Dr. Swapna Shanbagh Mahaman team on long-term outcome of amniotic membrane treatment in acute Steven Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. The article has been published in the journal, The Ocular Surface. The impact factor of this journal is 5.033. Steven Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis belong to a spectrum of disease characterized by acute sloughing of skin and mucous membrane. The ocular Manifestations can range from eyelid margin inflammation, conjunctival pseudomembrane formation, and epithelial defects of cornea and conjunctiva. Acute ocular involvement is seen in 40 to 84% of cases of SGS, out of which 43 to 89% can land up in chronic ocular complications. Complications can range from severe dry eyes, total limbal stem cell deficiency, ultimately leading to bilateral corneal blindness. The chronic ocular sequelae can account for 20 to 75% in survivors of TEN. Transplantation of cryopreserved amniotic membrane in acute phase of SGS as a biological bandage over entire ocular surface was first described in 2002 by John et al. After that, multiple case series, case reports, case control studies have been done, which have proved that use of amniotic membrane early in course of SGS has been beneficial rather than using conventional uh, therapies such as simbleferon lysis or use of topical medication. Amniotic membrane can either be used as an amniotic membrane transplant or procure device. Amniotic membrane transplant covers entire ocular surface from upper lid to lower lid and also the eyelid margins, while procure device only covers the cornea and perilimbal conjunctiva. Procure device may not prevent eyelid margin and pornational complications to the same degree as that of AMT. Although short-term studies have shown the benefit of amniotic membrane is just, but long-term outcomes of amniotic membrane cohort specifically have not yet been reported and there is no information on long-term complications of SGS, which may still arise. The present study describes an outcome of 55 eyes in 29 patients with SGS, which were treated with either AMT or PD in acute phase after a median follow-up period of 2.5 years. The purpose of this study is to report long-term outcomes of amniotic membrane use in the form of either AMT or PD in acute Steven Johnson syndrome, and also to study the ocular complications in chronic phase. The study was approved by Institutional Review Board of Massachusetts Eye and Ear and Massachusetts General Hospital. The study was conducted under Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act compliance and added to the teenage of Declaration of Helsinki. The patients were categorized as follows depending on body surface area involvement as SJS in le with less than 10% of body surface involved, 10 to 30% body surface involved were labeled as SJS and TN overlap while more than 30% body surface area involved were labeled as TEN. Patients were also categorized depending on duration from onset of skin rash as acute in le with less than two months duration, 
subacute with two to six months duration and chronic with duration of more than six months. Ocular involvement in acute phase was retrospectively graded based on clinical exam notes for each each eye using a grading system proposed by Sotzon et al. Who have graded into four grades: grade zero having no ocular involvement, grade one having only conjunctival hyperemia, grade two having either ocular surface epithelial defect or pseudomembrane formation, grade three having both epithelial defects and pseudomembrane formation. So a standard acute treatment protocol was uh, determined. to decide which patients will receive either amt or pd as follows all patients underwent a portable slit lamp examination or bedside examination and were graded into following grades grade 2 and grade 3 patients depending on ocular surface involvement received either amt or pd electronic records of all patients with a diagnosis of sjs between january 2008 and january 2018 who received amniotic membrane were reviewed patients with a follow up period of more than 3 months were included in the study Five patients died during study, and eleven patients had a follow-up of less than three months. Thus, a total of sixteen patients were excluded out of study. The basic procedure involved in case of AMT: the amniotic membrane was anchored to the external eyelid skin with bolsters or cyanoacrylate glue, and coverage of fornaces was ensured with a customized simulafron ring made up of sterile intravenous tubing. Procura device, as they they were self-retaining, they were not secured with any additional procedures. All patients in post-operative period received topical medication in the form of antibiotic eye drops, steroid eye drops, steroid eye ointment, and artificial tears. A follow-up period was kept daily in first week, continued every two to three days until the patient was discharged. The date of first amniotic membrane placement was labeled as day one, and then subsequent follow-up was kept. Statistical analysis were conducted using a SAS software with a p-value of less than 0.05, considered statistically significant. continuous parametric data were reported as mean with standard deviation while non parametric data were reported as median with interquartile range the demography represents a total of 128 patients were screened out of which 45 patients had 35 per, 35% patients received amniotic membrane out of which 16 patients were excluded the incidence of tn was 66% 79% of patients were hospitalized in burn unit Out of total, 86% of patients received systemic immunosuppression either in form of systemic corticosteroids, intravenous immunoglobulins, cyclosporine, or etanercept. The underlying etiology can be attributed to underlying drug use. Most commonly, in 35% of cases, was sulfonamide drug use, primarily cortimoxazole. The second most common drug that was antiepileptic medications, primarily lamotrigine, in 17% of cases. Out of 55 eyes, 31 eyes received amniotic membrane. while 24 eyes received procura device the results were studied in three groups either as acute phase chronic phase and management of chronic uh, complications in chronic phase so ocular features in patients who underwent amt in acute phase 45 eyes out of 55 eyes had a bcv of more than 20 by 40 at onset of sjs 10 patients were intubated so bcv could not be measured All 55 eyes had conjunctival hyperemia. 47 eyes had lead involvement with denudation of epithelia. 22 eyes had conjunctival pseudomembrane formation. 44 eyes had conjunctival epithelial defects. 31 eyes had corneal epithelial defects. As previously mentioned, according to criteria, 34 eyes had grade two involvement, while 21 eyes had grade three involvement. Out of total 55 eyes, 45 eyes received AMT bedside, while 10 eyes received in operating room. The median interval in all 55 eyes at which amniotic membrane was received from onset of skin rash was five days, with an interquartile range of three to seven days. In case of AMT, it was four days, while in case of Procura device, it was seven days. Procura device implantation is a bedside procedure, while AMT was initially performed either at bedside or in operating room. The techniques to facilitate AMT at bedside were developed later in study period. The median time to dissolution of amniotic membrane in all 55 eyes was nine days. In case of AMT, it was nine days, while in case of PD, it was 7.5 days. Following amniotic membrane transplantation, 40% of eyes required a repeat AMT or PD, while 11% of eyes required more than two amniotic membrane procedures due to persistent corneal or conjunctival epithelial defects. Eight eyes received procura device instead of AMT because of either patient's refusal or any contraindication to general anesthesia. Coming to chronic phase, serious vision-threatening complications during first year were persistent epithelial defect, sterile corneal perforations, and infectious keratitis. While vision-threatening complications later in chronic phase were most commonly moderate to severe eyelid margin keratinization, central corneal vascularization, and central corneal opacity. 
why most common complications during chronic phase was meibomi and gland disease and dry eye it is noted here that 87% of eyes had a bescorrected visual acuity more than 20 by 40 at last follow the chart depicts the number of eyes with complications no eye developed a total limbal stem cell deficiency or keratinization of ocular surface subsequent procedures required in chronic phase for management of complications were 21 eyes underwent prose device implantation one eye required sinoclerid glue two eyes required lateral tarsoscopy one patient underwent amt in chronic phase three patients underwent prokaryotic implantation in chronic phase eight patients underwent mucous membrane grafting while four patients underwent surgery for enteroplasm the median time interval between first amniotic membrane and use of prose device in 21 eyes that required prose was 5.6 months while median time interval between first amniotic membrane and mucous membrane grafting in these eight eyes was 2.73 months certain challenges that were faced by researchers during amniotic membrane transplantation was dislodgement of graft either by the nursing staff while cleaning the of the patient or due to inadvertent removal in one patient having delirium or pitted dislodgement in one patient due to severe vomiting also in a patient with relatively shallow orbits sizing of intravenous tubing required more trial and error thus education of nursing staff on proper care of amniotic membrane is important while a close follow up ensures that amniotic membrane is replaced promptly sgs is a devastating disease in which disabling ocular complications have been shown to be the most common of all complications in survivors of ten in countries where acute care of sgs is not available sgs is a cause of bilateral limbal stem cell deficiency in 30% of such cases according to the study done by basu s et al 99% of children of sgs did not have an access to amniotic membrane in acute phase of their disease out of which 66% had a bcv of less than 20 by 60 a year or more later lee hg et al studied that steven johnson syndrome management in case of icu only 66% of burn intensive care units in united states routinely seek an ophthalmologic con consultation for patients with acute sgs the present study shows that ophthalmology consult in an immediate acute phase of sgs can substantially reduce the visual morbidity of sgs in chronic phase the present study 87% of eyes had retained bcv of more than 20 by 40 at last follow coming to discussion amniotic membrane when used in acute phase in this highly inflamed eyes exhibit an anti inflammatory and anti scarring action however the timing of amniotic membrane placement is crucial sheroff and colleagues said that there is increased risk of moderate or severe dry eye moderate tarsal scarring and visual acuity less than 20 by 30 in eyes which received amniotic membrane after 6 days of disease onset also seralski and coworkers said that there is increased complications in ocular surface disease in an untreated eye as compared to fellow eye treated with amt thus maintaining an ophthalmology follow up at the same center where amniotic where patient is seen in acute phase may be difficult as patients are often referred to burn intensive care units from large surrounding geographical area and they may prefer to follow up with local ophthalmologist after their acute care the principal strength of current study is long overall follow up of cases certain limitations were retrospective nature of disease and also patients received various systemic treatments in primary care that which may have influenced ocular outcomes thus they concluded that long term results shows that early use of amniotic membrane in acute phase of sgs may be effective in mitigating severe vision loss after sgs however side threatening complications do occur even with the use of amniotic membrane and thus a long term follow up is of utmost importance in these patients thus according to mari framework the method describes study questions are well defined sample size is well defined study population includes inclusion and exclusion criteria are well defined study period is well defined it's a retrospective nature of study use of systemic therapy in the form of systemic immunosuppression could have altered the ocular findings the time interval of amniotic membrane placement from onset of rash was delayed in few cases the assessment describes the that outcome of outcome was measured by bescorrected visual acuity at last follow up the bcva at each follow up could have been taken into consideration the details of amniotic membrane have not been specified as to what what thickness of amniotic membrane is used statistical tests are appropriate 
coming to interpretation use of amniotic membrane early in course of sgs can help to reduce severe ocular complications while long term follow up is required to record complications the study has shown a bedside procedure for amniotic membrane which has an added advantage while amniotic membrane can reduce ocular complication if used in acute sgs to some extent but certain complications like dry eyes and eyelid related complications are inevitable thank you aditya for a wonderful uh, uh, powerpoint presentation of this uh, journal article uh, so a question arises to us uh, as to um, uh, dr swapna has shown a very good result in uh, 87% of uh, eyes they retained the bcda of 2040 so we would like to ask her uh as to what kind of uh, procedure has been done uh for this amniotic uh, uh, how uh, uh, she has used the amniotic membrane and the specification of the amniotic membrane uh yeah so uh, i'd like to share a very short uh, powerpoint which probably will cover uh, most of the points so what i'm trying to show here is that can you uh, can you see the ppt dr shubha Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is a patient of acute SJS who presented to us, as in we were called to a multi-specialty hospital to uh, look at her, and as you can see, there is so much crusting on the face. So looking at this patient, uh, you would think that uh, you have no idea what is exactly the status of her both her eyes. Uh, this patient had uh, toxic epidermal necrolysis to uh, anti-epileptic drug. So after uh, after looking at her. Uh, we had taken our entire kit and i'll show you what all we take generally so in the acute phase uh, they can have pseudo membranes like this they can have complete uh, conjunctival epithelial involvement and they can also have large corneal epithelial defects so it's very important to take fluorocin uh, with us when we are going to evaluate these patients at the bedside and it is also very important to realize that lid margin epithelium can also be denuded conjunctival epithelium can also be de denuded but the cornea can still be intact like in seen in this image so uh, very important to take uh, a blue filter also so we actually take an indirect ophthalmoscope uh, or a direct ophthalmoscope too to uh, evaluate uh, after using fluorocin at the bedside Uh, so this is uh, one of the papers from Dr. Chodosh's group in Boston, where I worked for two years. Uh, so this is the first technique where, which was described at the bedside, where as you can see, there are bolsters being used to anchor the amniotic membrane to the lid margins in the upper and the lower quadrant. But again, this involves sutures, and this is time-consuming. Uh, again, a simplifiron ring has been used. So the overall technique is the same, where you cover the entire ocular surface from lid margin till the upper fornix. from till the lower fornix and the lower lid margin so the entire ocular surface needs to be covered by the amniotic membrane and uh, this is how the simplifiron ring is made so we make it at lvpi with uh, the infant feeding tube size 6 and uh, we cut one edge sharp and one edge blunt and thread it into each other and then form the simplifiron ring this needs some trial and error because we uh, cannot gauge the uh, depth of the fornix in all the cases so it is better to err and keep it larger and then keep on making it smaller so that it covers both the fornices uh, thus taking the amniotic membrane deep into the fornice when it completely expands uh, this is another technique where uh, the lashes need to be cut first and we can actually use cyanoacrylate glue on the lid margin and uh, use the amniotic membrane uh, with and adhere it to the lid margin with the cyanoacrylate glue this works very well you don't have to use sutures you don't have to use uh, any bolsters and as you can see here there is a demas retractor and we are using the simplifiron ring uplifting the upper lid and uh, putting this simplifiron ring inside so that it takes the amt into the upper fornix and then uh, we have a very large amt and we are using it in the lower fornix also so this amniotic membrane needs to be 5 by 9 cm or 5 by 10 cm uh, it cannot be the normal amniotic membrane uh, which is smaller in size and you will need two of those uh, and it makes the procedure also cumbersome so at least from the uh, i bank ramayama i bank at lv prasad we actually also customize the amniotic membrane and if you need an amniotic membrane which is 5 by 9 cm you can request for that we cut it accordingly and for sjs patients also we use these larger amniotic membranes and as you can see in the lower lid again uh, on the skin it is adhered with the help of 
uh, cyanoacrylate glue. So this is how we get uh, coverage from one lead margin to the other lead margin with the simliferon ring going into the fornicist. This is an amserter. Uh, this we have also found this to be very helpful. Uh, this is actually uh, manufactured by Orolab, but was uh, invented by Dr. Bhaskar Roy, Roy Chaudhary from Calcutta. And this is uh, very useful because it's a very simple device between which you can sandwich the amniotic membrane. And this then goes uh, as, and acts like a simpliferon ring, thus coverage, giving us coverage of both the fornices. So uh, the amniotic membrane is sandwiched between these two rings and then it is used as a self-retaining supporter. Uh, there's also a YouTube video on Amserta and you'll find material on this online. And uh, we can order this also if we think that we are going to be called in for an SJS patient. So we can order this and keep it with us. So the equipment required for examination is again, fluorescein strip of thalmoscope for the blue light source. A barricade night drop, beta D night drop, distilled water, sterile buds, and a torch, an amniotic membrane, cyanoacrylate glue, a Demars retractor. We also take an iris repositor to ensure that the amniotic membrane is completely covered over the surface, and an infant feeding tube, which you can find in any ICU actually, and uh, instruments for painting, gloves, and scissors. Now, this patient who uh, has so much crusting over all the uh, over the eyelids, and we can actually see that there are a lot of membranes in the eye. Just by cleaning and removing all the crusts and uh, cleaning her eye with uh, normal uh, distilled water, we actually got uh, got to this situation within within twenty minutes. So you can see that her. Uh, the eyes are perfectly fine underneath, but obviously she had a uh, she had lead margin epithelial defects, conjunctival epithelial defects too, and that's why we did an uh, bedside AMT in both the eyes. Um, and uh, this is uh, as you can see, this is when she came for follow up twenty days later. You can see how the eyelids look like they are burnt. So SJS actually acts like an immunological burn. Uh, where uh, the lashes are all distorted. And you can see that this is a simpliferon ring, but the AMT has completely dissolved 20 days down the line. But she had no epithelial defects 20 days down the line. So these eyes, actually, you are able to save the cornea in the acute phase, and they do not reach complications like LSCD, corneal scarring, and all these uh, problems. So eventually, six months down the line, she required lid margin MMG. She required uh, uh, another entropion uh, correction. But uh, this is her two years down the line. And at two years, she's 2020 in both the eyes. You can see that she has undergone lid margin MMGs and entropion correction. But just because of the fact that we did AMT in the acute phase, uh, she has reached a point where um, uh, we were able to uh, salvage her uh, vision. Uh, and although she still required interventions in the chronic phase, having that window of opportunity where we did AMT at the correct point of time has helped us achieve this outcome eventually. So yeah, acute SJS examined daily at bedside, great, manage appropriately, have a very low threshold for AMT because the risk versus benefit ratio is very, uh, like the amount of benefits you have are a lot higher than the amount of risks you will have if you do AMT. And close follow-up is still required in the chronic phase. And we need to do uh, early surgical intervention the moment we see any complications such as lead margin keratinization in the chronic phase. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Swapna. Uh, you've explained the procedure very, uh, very uh, nicely. And I would also like to ask uh, Dr. Geeta, ma'am, as to how uh, you would go ahead with this. Good evening to all my uh, co-panelists, the moderators of the session, uh, uh, all my colleagues and friends. Dr. Aditya, you did a wonderful job of presenting the journal. Thank you. And um, uh, Dr. Swapna has already shown us um, the technique of performing amniotic membrane in the acute uh, stage. The uh, journal article is an excellent contribution to literature by Professor James Chodosh, whom we all hold in very high regard in the subject of Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And I think two main questions that we need to ask ourselves when we are attempting to perform an amniotic membrane in the acute stage is um, what exactly is our uh, long-term outcome and what exactly uh, it is that we are trying to prevent in this so-called window of opportunity that we claim to have within the first one week of the disease. Uh, one uh, is, uh, will 
doing an amniotic membrane in the acute stage prevent the occurrence of uh, uh, limbal stem cell deficiency. Now, limbal stem cell deficiency in SJS occurs because of two reasons. One, in the acute stage, the limbal stem cells could be the target of the disease itself, just like your other uh, epithelial cells. And uh, the second cause for limbal stem cell deficiency in these patients is the long-term progression of the limbal deficiency, which occurs because of uh, the various mechanical factors in the eye, such as uh, the lid margin keratinization, especially, which leads to a chronic blink-induced microtrauma. So in our cohort of more than 750 um, patients that we had seen over a span of 15 years, what we noticed was that in almost 60% of patients, when you don't intervene in the chronic phase, you have a progressive worsening of the limbal deficiency. So when we talk about long-term outcome in terms of two and a half years, I would say that we still have several more years, like rightly pointed out both in the article as well as by Swapna, that uh, lid margin keratinization is something that can continue to cause a worsening of the limbal stem cell deficiency over several years after the onset of SJS. And this is uh, confounded by uh, the factors such as the severity of the associated dryness, the other rednex cell conditions that you have, each of which merit uh, addressing uh, these issues in order to prevent this from occurring. And uh, a second uh, question that we would need to answer with respect to AMT in the acute stage is, does it really prevent the occurrence of uh, lid margin keratinization? I mean, that's one hallmark uh, 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 of this disease, which is responsible for several of the chronic factors that it induces. Uh, so both from the paper, as well as from the various studies that have been um, uh, conducted by uh, the others also primarily in the US, we do see that lid margin keratinization is something that is not completely abolished by performing um, this procedure. And therefore, we need to not be complacent thinking that doing an amniotic membrane in the acute stage is the end of uh, an ophthalmologist's job. It is probably just the beginning. Definitely doing an amniotic membrane in this stage has a huge role to play. Unfortunately, we do not have statistics to compare the LSCD in these eyes um, in a controlled manner. And I think it's going to be impossible to do a controlled fashion study henceforth because we know what the relevance of doing amniotic membrane in these eyes is in the acute stage. So when we say 30% uh, of patients with uh, bilateral limbal stem cell deficiency from uh, countries that do not give acute uh, care amniotic, uh, uh, you know, in the acute stage, probably we are not comparing um, similar cohorts and uh, it would not be right to say that um, it does not cause LSCD at all in the acute stage because we still don't know what those factors are that lead to limbal stem cell deficiency in the acute stage. We have confounding factors such as systemic management uh, modalities the drug itself, we don't know whether that leads to any difference in the way in which your uh, um, outcomes are. But um, uh, to um, answer the question with respect to the role of amniotic membrane and the technique of amniotic membrane, I think as far as the technique is concerned, it's been highlighted and illustrated very well by uh, Swapna as well as in the paper. And uh, probably a couple of points that I would um, have liked to have had um, a little more understanding um, uh, in the particular paper would have been in those subset of uh, patients, I think eight um, eyes, which actually required amniotic membrane, but underwent Prokera. And uh, you know what exactly happened in those eyes would probably have thrown a little more light in our understanding of what suboptimal treatment in the acute stage actually led to in terms of either lid margin keratinization or uh, dry eye because of a simulephron in the superotemporal quadrant. I mean, I'm sure Swapna would have looked at uh, those details. Probably uh, they were not uh, uh, specifically emphasized upon in the paper, but that was something which would have thrown more light on what suboptimal treatment would have done to these uh, eyes. And whether lid margin keratinization was seen more in the group that received Prokera or more in the group of eyes that received 
uh, a lid margin to lid margin amniotic membrane transplant. Um, also, uh, the uh, role of dry eye in these patients, I did notice that there was a significant number of eyes which did develop uh, uh, moderate to severe dryness in these eyes because we know that they always go hand in hand, uh, the severity of dryness and the lid margin keratinization in your chronic outcomes. And a little bit of understanding with respect to these um, factors would have, uh, uh, you know, probably added uh, more um, understanding of the uh, uh, amniotic membrane use in the acute stage. But otherwise, uh, definitely there is no uh, question regarding the role or the use of amniotic membrane in the acute stage of SGS. Thank you, Dr. Geeta, ma'am. Uh, Dr. Swapna, you have anything to comment on or... Uh... Yeah, so uh, out of the number of eyes uh, which underwent, uh, which actually had lead margin keratinization in the uh, chronic phase, uh, I think eight eyes had it and six of those eyes had undergone a Procura device. So yeah, Procura doesn't give us any lid margin coverage. It just gives us perilimbal conjunctival coverage and corneal coverage. So it doesn't go anywhere near the lid margin. So that is one shortcoming of Procura. And that's why it is better to not uh, have something like Procura and better do AMT from lid margin to lid margin, although we still do not know. Uh, I have still seen patients where we have done AMT from lid margin to lid margin and they still uh, end up having um, a lot of, uh, they still end up having lid margin keratinization. So I don't think uh, amniotic membrane does anything for the lid margin. And most of the, maybe they won't have as florid lid margin keratinization, uh, but uh, they do end up in lid margin keratinization. So yeah, that's a good point uh, that Dr. Geeta has highlighted that yes, uh, eyes which underwent just Procura and not amniotic membrane from lid margin to lid margin didn't, did end up with more uh, lid margin keratinization. Also, I would like to highlight from the paper that um, uh, amniotic membrane being done one, once is not the end game. A lot of these patients, like 40% uh, of these patients required amniotic membrane a second time. So we have seen that amniotic membrane, the amount of inflammation on the ocular surface is so severe that the amniotic membrane just dissolves in four or five days. And the patient still has persistent epithelial defects. So that's not the end game. We have to go back. We have to have a daily checkup. We have to use fluorescine and find out what is happening. And if we see that there is still a PED and the amniotic membrane is dissolved, it is always prudent to have a low threshold to go ahead and do a second amniotic membrane. I have seen patients in Boston who are 20, 23 years down the line after three amniotic membranes in the acute phase. So they do have a role. Maybe if they were undertreated, they would not, would not have done so well. So repeat amniotic membrane is also required for a lot of these eyes. Uh, so yeah, I think as uh, cornea specialists, as ophthalmologists, we need to reach out to um, our uh, colleagues who handle these cases in the acute phase and tell them that uh, what happens in the chronic phase, they may not know, but it is the cornea specialist who know what happens in the chronic phase. And that's why these patients need a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of, uh, I mean, proper care, appropriate care in the acute phase and consultation of an, of an ophthalmologist at the bedside. You cannot wait for these patients to come to your clinic. Uh, because uh, by that time, the window of opportunity is actually lost. So you have to go to their bedside and actually uh, examine them. This is like, um, this is life changing for them. I have seen patients who have no, who just come for follow up once a year. Uh, they are doing so well post amniotic membrane transplantation in the acute phase and after handling them in through all their chronic uh, ocular surface complications. So it makes that much of a difference. Whereas most of the STS patients who were never seen in the acute phase were not managed in the acute phase uh, do uh, do really uh, not not so well, and they have all kinds of corneal complications, corneal vascularizations. You have to keep them on topical steroids because they keep having bouts of inflammation, severe inflammation, microbial keratitis, and all these complications which just keep going downhill. And as of, as we all know, SJS also there is a very huge. A problem of dry eye, which gives does not allow us to do surgeries like penetrating keratoplasty in a lot of these cases because obviously these uh, eye the uh, the PK would fail in these eyes. So in SJS, it is all the more important that we target the acute phase because we do not have a lot of options in the chronic phase, and we should try our best that these eyes do not reach a phase of keratoprosthesis. Uh, so that's where uh, all this discussion comes in. 
so Swapna, I have just one comment that uh, in your study, uh, about 25 patients, I think, required uh, intravenous steroids or immunosuppressive. So do you think that this could also have had an impact on the outcome that uh, you have seen in these patients? Or do we attribute this totally to the amniotic membrane? Because I think 25 out of 29 patients uh, did receive uh, uh, IV steroids and IV immunosuppressed, uh, the, the immunoglobulins, you know. And I think they were the patients with TN, if I understand uh, rightly, yeah. So would that also have an impact uh, on the outcome? So systemic immunosuppression is a standard form of therapy for almost all SJS patients. There were hardly any patients in the study who did not receive systemic immunosuppression. So uh, IVMP given uh, three days continuously or cyclosporin or etanercept or IV immunoglobulin was, uh, uh, was given to a, a lot of these patients. And this is a huge confounding factor where we cannot figure out if uh, that had any role or not. Because we also went back and looked at uh, all the all the patients who received only cyclosporin and uh, whether their outcomes in the eyes were any different. But uh, the numbers are so few that we cannot come to any statistical significance. So it's very difficult to say that uh, IV immunosuppression did have a role in, uh, uh, in mitigating the ocular complications. But uh, on another note, I see generally two to three new SJS patients on a weekly basis because we are a tertiary referral center and I always take a very good history regarding their acute phase management. And a lot of them have received uh, systemic steroids in the acute phase, but they still have all kinds of complications uh, and very severe complications. So, uh, so very difficult to say what role does systemic immunosuppression have, but uh, I, I do think it plays a role, but um, it's not very evident as of now. But it does play a role in the systemic management too, so to reduce the cytokine storm. So Dr. Gita, ma'am, uh, I want to know from your side that you also deal with these patients. So uh, uh, this study was performed in US. So I think where uh, I'm not sure whether the risk of infections are uh, uh, lesser. But in our country, do we follow the same kind of uh, uh, protocol of giving uh, uh, immunosuppression and steroids to all these patients because when I went through the literature, you know, major many of the uh, articles said that if you have more than 30% of the uh, body surface area exposed, there is a very high risk of sepsis, pneumonitis, uh, and they succumb to the disease, you know. So, uh, uh, what is your uh, take on uh, IV steroids and uh, uh, immunosuppressors and immunoglobulins? Yeah. Yes, Parul. So I think a study coming from the US, you are seeing so much of variation with respect to the uh, systemic medications that were administered. So when you talk about a country like um, India, you're going to, one, we don't have a registry. We don't have any way of trying to figure out what the medications were that were administered retrospectively. And uh, uh, in collaboration with our dermatologist, um, with whom we work very closely in the acute stage. Uh, so the uh, protocol is once you've confirmed your diagnosis of Stevens-Johnson syndrome, there is definitely a role of systemic steroids and in fact, systemic cyclosporine in the management of acute SGS. Now, how much these medications are going to contribute uh, to the resolution of your ocular manifestations with or without an amniotic membrane is uh, uh, still at large. We don't know the exact answer to that question because uh, there aren't, of course, too many um, patients whom you're going to uh, be seeing or treating in just one multi-speciality center for a disease, which is so rare. And with varied kind of uh, management protocols that you have across the country, it's going to be very difficult to actually find out what the effect of each of these confounding parameters are going to be as far as your outcome is concerned. But to answer your question, there is definitely a role of systemic steroids and cyclosporine. And it is the uh, it is basically the coordinated role of the intensivists, the dermatologists, to ensure that infection is kept um, at bay and identified and treated effectively if it occurs. Uh, it is a life-threatening disease, but that doesn't mean uh, um, that you have a very high percentage of mortality. Uh, when well-managed in the acute stage, you do have a significant proportion of these patients who do come out of it and um, uh, whom we are left with to take care of the uh, 
large the ophthalmic sequelae that we see in these uh, patients. A couple of other points that I would like to quickly touch upon is uh, uh, the reason why we also attribute um, uh, maybe um, you know a good outcome or um, uh, early resolution in patients with uh, who undergo amniotic membrane in the acute stage, especially those patients whom you have been taking care of since the beginning is that the other patients, that is the ones whom you are not uh, in care, in charge of during the acute stage, when they come to you, they come to you at a much later stage. You know, the, the intensity of follow-up and the intensity of compliance that you tend to stress upon uh, to these patients when you are in the picture right at the beginning, it makes a big difference compared uh, to the patients who come to you, say, two years down the line, uh, at which, till which point in time there's no ophthalmologist who has seen them at all. If you look at the paper, there were uh, quite a few patients who did have peripheral central corneal vascularization and conjunctivalization, probably not features of total LSCD, but features of partial uh, limbal stem cell stress and efficiency. And when uh, this goes unnoticed for prolonged periods of time with additional factors such as LMK and dryness, by the time they reach you, see visual acuity is something that we keep stressing upon as ophthalmologists, but visual acuity on day one of SJS, as well as probably within the first two years, I, in, in my um, belief, is not a big factor that determines whether amniotic membrane has had its um, uh, intended outcome or not. Because even in a chemical injury or even in SJS, you will have patients reading 6-6 on day one, even if their epithelium is completely denuded. It's only when the healing does not take place satisfactorily that you will end up having patients with uh, uh, impeded visual acuity. So uh, visual acuity would still come lower down in the uh, uh, priority of parameters that need to be evaluated. But um, uh, because when you have limbal stem cell deficiency, when you have the vascularization that comes into the center, that's when the vision will start falling. And that's when they will seek ophthalmic care, by which time it's probably already too late. Yeah, uh, Dr. Gita, I just need some of the tips for the general ophthalmologist. So for the bedside amniotic membrane, now Dr. Swapna said that we need a 10 by 5 uh, millimeter of amniotic membrane. Centimeter. Yeah, centimeter, sorry. Yeah. And our eye bank does not uh, provide us uh, more than 5 by 5. So is it possible that we could have first cover the cornea and then take the two layers uh, on to cover the fornices and the lid margin? Secondly, do you perform this procedure under topical anesthesia, perivalvular anesthesia, because most of these procedures will be done bedside. So uh, any tips for the general ophthalmologist from your side? So um, I think the first thing is to uh, evaluate uh, the patient, like she rightly said, fluorescein is your, uh, is your uh, key ingredient here when you are investigating these um, eyes and especially the tarsal surface because most of the times you end up uh, staining and looking for bulbar epithelial defects and you miss out completely on the tarsal surface and that's what we are equally uh, concerned about and uh, an amniotic membrane if applied as a single uh, piece covering from the lid margin to lid margin is something that is going to give you uh, uh, I mean it makes your job easier if you have a single large piece of amniotic, you're, by, you're in the bedside and there are so many other constraints that you're working with that uh, doing it with a single piece of amniotic definitely uh, helps. But if you don't, you can, um, you can obviously use multiple uh, sheets. You can put in a conformer so that the layer which is spread out on the undersurface of the lid stays over the conformer and is still protecting the undersurface of the lids and uh, the lid. So you can definitely uh, use uh, more than two membranes if you don't have access to a bigger piece of amniotic membrane. So you also use a cyanoacrylic glue or you use uh, stitches for the lid margin? And uh, So we uh, can use cyanoacrylic glue is an excellent option. I mean, that is that makes your uh, life very simple. But uh, if you don't have access uh, to it, you can even take a running uh, bedside suture. Uh, you can just do it under topical anesthesia. If you want, you can just infiltrate just the lid margin if you want to take uh, sutures along the lid margin. But otherwise, uh, cyanacrylate glue is probably one of the easiest ways of doing it under topical. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, also, Dr. Parul, it, it is, uh, we always ask the anesthetist to give uh, uh, propofol and uh, sedate the patient when we are doing the amniotic membrane because some of these patients are in some sort of delirium. They are not in the proper uh, like uh, consciousness. So it also helps to have an anesthetist uh, with you who is willing to sedate the patient while you're doing the procedure so that the procedure is easier. So it's bedside you mean, you mean to see or not in the operation theater? Okay. No, this is bedside here. Yeah. Bedside. Okay, fine. Dr. Shubha. Yeah. I would like to ask uh, Dr. Swapna, uh, does age have anything to do with the outcome of the disease? Uh, I don't think so. It is just that for children, when we... Uh, uh, when we see these patients in the acute phase uh, with children, it is a, it's a bit more difficult uh, to do the amniotic membrane. They might not be as cooperative as an understanding adult might be. So uh, that is one issue. So there have been cases where we were not able to perform the amniotic membrane or uh, the parents were very concerned, did not give consent in spite of telling them what the implications are. And we finally had to take the patients in the OR after they were discharged from the hospital for a proper amniotic membrane transplantation under general anesthesia. So in children, probably we do miss the window of opportunity in some cases, but uh, we have still seen successful cases uh, even in the pediatric age group. So, um, uh, and also I think uh, in the pediatric age group, uh, the incidence of SJS is uh, Probably, I'm not sure, but uh, we see a lot of SJS due to uh, over over the counter use of uh, antibiotics uh, for even uh, like fever, cold, and you know the parents would just go to a pharmacy and they're given quadrimoxazole. So we see a lot of pediatric SJS too, and it is difficult to understand uh, uh, like uh, because uh, in the in the acute in the uh, when they are children. And uh, the surgical intervention has not been done at the right time. We lose uh, them because they might get amblyopic by the time they come to us. So overall, yes, pediatric SJS is very difficult to manage. Uh, but I, if they're managed well, I don't think their outcome should be as uh, very different from uh, what we see in adults. Yeah, I would uh, like to ask uh, Geeta, ma'am. Uh, so these patients, as we see, uh, they are mostly admitted in ICUs uh, or uh, in burn units, the acute phase. So once out of ICU, uh, what follow-up do you advise and uh, what do you advise? Like what is the protocol? Uh, do you advise uh, pros devices for uh, everyone and how do you go about it? Um, so your follow-up advice basically depends on the clinical features and manifestations. Not everybody is uh, given a blanket uh, um, follow-up advice. And based on the extent of um, involvement, especially with respect to dryness and um, uh, lid margin changes that you start seeing uh, over a period of time, uh, normally what we do uh, advocate is that uh, once they are discharged, uh, you would want to see them and ensure that, you know, the epithelial defects have completely healed. And once that has happened, you would want to see them a month later and then probably once every three months to see whether there is um, uh, any ophthalmic manifestation that requires management or not. And uh, subsequently, based on the severity of the dryness and the lid margin changes, these patients are either advised to punctal occlusion in the form of uh, a cautery if the dryness is very severe or um, a prose lens again for dryness and uh, uh, lid margin uh, mucous membrane grafting for lid margin keratinization if it is causing corresponding corneal changes uh, in the form of vascularization and uh, staining. So these are things that we need to keep um, our uh, uh, you know, attention to. And uh, for any uh, adnexal changes such as entropion or tracheosis, that again needs to be addressed. So just one question to Swapna. Swapna, you said in your study that the, the, the average period was about five months for the pros lenses. Uh, but according, I, I, I don't know, uh, subacute phase is one of the phase where actually we land up with uh, corneal complications. So in my clinical practice, I've, I've seen a very few ones, but uh, patients usually when come out from the ICU and they're coming to me, 
they invariably either have an epithelial defect because of the trochaic lashes or uh, so is it not uh, good to give them a prose lens a little earlier so that we can prevent the corneal scarring because once you have a corneal problem it's like uh, uh, we've lost half of the battle yeah so uh, in this cohort actually uh, they did not have uh, uh, too many cases of uh, trichiasis and dystichiasis and all these other adnexal complications so uh, we could wait it out and actually quite a few patients went for pros because uh, they were not willing for litmagen mmg so uh, the uh, the the rate at which uh, the patients in the us go for a surgical intervention is very different from our cohort in india so uh, a lot of patients actually would go for scleral lenses and would not go for surgery so they are they are the ones who would probably have required litmagen mmg but did not undergo the same and then they were given prose lenses as an alternative so that's why uh, that would be slightly later and also some of these patients have uh, acute inflammation going on for the first 2 3 months so you would rather wait and give prose lenses slightly later because prose lenses would not actually be a solution for your dystichiatic trichiatic lashes because it also has an off time prose lenses are generally used for 8 hours every day so for those kind of problems i would still send them for an electrolysis to my oculoplasty colleague um because uh, i'm not sure if they'll be using the prose lenses as i would like them to so it's better to go for a a permanent surgical intervention and so, i know that one electrolysis uh, sitting is not going to solve it so they may need multiple sittings but i would still go for that so it means that in subacute subacute stage we would look at uh, the minor procedures like punctal cautery or yes. occlusion uh, the the epilation you know the surgical yes. uh, modalities of treating the eyelashes uh probably which would prevent our corneal complications yes that's true i think we should have a low threshold for uh, doing a punctal cautery in these eyes uh preserving whatever tears they are having on the ocular surface and also look at the adnexal complications and treat them accordingly uh shubha i think dr maninder sitia has joined he is the statistician so if you yes i would like to have your opinion statistical opinion about the uh, journal article dr maninder sethia please the article was very i mean the statistics presented in the article are pretty straightforward they've not used a lot of statistical methods right they've just collected the data they that they have and these are mostly descriptive statistics right mostly percentages proportions or means and standard deviations so there's nothing i mean they've not used any uh, advanced methods or all that it's just a presentation so and they've just for continuous data if it was non parametric they've just presented as medians like one thing i liked about it that they presented the units for medians also that's a nice way of writing like we generally write the mean duration was 7 days but they've written the units within the brackets as well like you know so that's a very i mean that was a learning thing for me as well to present the units within the parameter like within the confidence intervals or brackets something that was good thank you dr maninder yeah uh, i would like uh, geeta ma'am to please highlight uh, mucus membrane grafting for this uh, lead membrane uh, lead margin keratinization i read a wonderful <laughs> article of yours in ijo so uh, the recent one in april 2021 so uh, that was an editorial that i enjoyed writing and uh, uh one question that i was actually going to say that we should be asking ourselves is how early after acute sjs if the patient has lit margin keratinization do you actually subject the patient to mucous membrane grafting that's a question that is very often asked of us and uh, i think we should not really strictly compartmentalize these eyes uh, into a watertight bracket of uh, uh, semi acute and uh, chronic because then we tend to get a little lost in the semantics the um, we've had patients who have come to us as early as 2 months after the sjs with severe uh, lid margin um, keratinization you know it's almost like as if there is uh, uh keratin that's bunched up along the entire uh, uh lid margin which uh, is significantly rubbing on the cornea so as early as even 
two months or even earlier after the onset of SJS, provided the uh, oral mucosal inflammation has subsided, the ulcerations have healed completely in the mouth and allows you to use uh, intubate these patients safely because you don't want uh, ulcerations in the uh, um, respiratory pathway that could uh, be an impediment to general anesthesia and uh, uh, ulcerations in the mouth. So once that heals, uh, that is as early as how you can actually perform the procedure. The uh, uh, Like uh, Swapna rightly pointed out, prose is not an um, uh, alternative to mucous membrane um, grafting because you do have several hours of the day that you don't have the prose lenses on and uh, mucous membrane um, grafting is probably what we do for most of our patients and then uh, advice for the prose lens for the residual dryness and the corneal opacity uh, that might be there in the eye to improve both the vision as well as the comfort of the patient. So with respect to mucous membrane grafting, I guess that's a separate uh, class by itself or a separate session by itself. But in short, yes, the indications are when you have significant LMK that is causing corresponding corneal changes in the form of corneal staining, vascularization. If the patient has already had any episodes of epithelial defect or um, and uh, subsequent stromal melt, at times even perforation or a secondary infection, which you feel is attributable to the LMK, then um, then it's probably, uh, it, it is mandatory that you should be because this is your second window of opportunity before the patient goes to your uh, uh, stage of keratoprosthesis. And uh, uh, LMK is something which uh, can significantly change the uh, entire uh, game in these um, eyes and stabilize the ocular surface. So these are called as uh, stabilization procedures, both your punctal cautery as well as mucous membrane uh, grafting. So LMK, the severity, the corneal corresponding corneal changes, the associated dryness, uh, all these are factors which you have to take into consideration and your threshold is quite low. Uh, you have to remember that there is one subset of patients who tend to have severe inflammation despite having addressed all these issues, but that's a small subset and that's something that we've still not uh, been able to decipher the uh, cause as well as the appropriate management in those patients, but that's a small subset of patients, but otherwise largely mucous membrane grafting for lid margin keratinization has a definite role in these uh, eyes. Usually all four lids, if required under general anesthesia can be performed and uh, you require uh, a graft size of around 20 by five or six millimeters per eyelid. So depending on the number of eyelids that you've decided to operate upon, you have enough tissue to harvest from the lower lip if required from the upper lip and uh, sutured along the lid margin and stuck with fibrin glue well opposed to the cut edge of the conjunctival so that you ensure that there's no conjunctival uh, growing beneath your mucosa causing mucosal necrosis. And uh, a well-done mucosal graft uh, um, risk of uh, necrosis and the need for re-mucosal graft is very, very low. So, Dr. Geeta, it's an offbeat question, but I just want to ask, with LMK, when you do a mucous membrane graft, sometimes you still see some of the patients having a recurrence of keratinization. So, could you just tell from your experience, which patients actually get this recurrence? So, are, the patient, are these the patients who have ongoing inflammation or there are some other uh, uh, reasons for keratinization to come back? So, what we always look at is where the track of keratinization has uh, you know, tracked in from. And you will, in most instances, be able to track it up to the lid margin at some point in time where your mucosa has kind of retracted at the uh, edges and it's probably come in. Or if you have left behind a keratinized strip posterior to your mucosal graft, then that could appear as a recurrence. A residual keratinization can be termed as a recurrent keratinization. And uh, it's not necessarily that it should be in eyes with inflammation. You can have it in an eye with inflammation. You can have it in an eye with uh, severe dryness. But usually the risk of re-keratinization after you have uh, placed a well-done uh, mucous membrane graft is very, very low. Unless you end up having a necrosis of the graft, then you are going to have a recurrence of the keratinization. 
excellent you. discussion, but uh, because of paucity of time, one last and it was question, uh, excellent. You know, we can go on and on and, and a lot of insights and a very good discussion, a thorough discussion, very insightful. I thank uh, uh, Dr. Geeta and Dr. Swapna and uh, Aditya, very great presentation and a very good co coordination by Dr. Subha, ma'am. So I was playing the video. I think Shubha wanted to ask the role of, I mean, how one should go ahead with cataract surgery in these patients. So yeah. any one of the panelists who can answer. Yeah, the... one last question. Questions don't sure, tell sure. experts. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Sorry about it. Uh, cataract surgeries in these eyes are always done after stabilizing the ocular surface. Uh, uh, address the dry eye, address the lid margin changes, address uh, neck cell conditions. Are you dealing with an eye which has any corneal opacities or not? Uh, you can, um, I mean, you have your pre-operative preparation and then your intraoperative challenges, which might require uh, 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 the use of a light pipe when you're doing uh, cataracts in these patients. I will park calculation. Again, it's, uh, it's a session by itself. And uh, the need to uh, educate these patients on the need for approach lenses if they have uh, uh, corneal opacities. The uh, role of optical iridectomy in these eyes uh, if there is a central scar. So there's a long list of uh, do's and don'ts for cataract surgery in these eyes. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I, I hope I have kind of and the post-operative care to ensure that the healing is, uh, is, is good. Post-operatively, the role of NSAIDs uh, uh, because they cause more uh, problem. Totally avoid NSAIDs in these yeah, uh, yeah, topical NSAIDs in any dry eye uh, patient is uh, contraindicated. That, that was really a wonderful discussion. Uh, the essence of today's discussion is act early to prevent blindness arising out of Stephen Johnson syndrome. Amniotic membrane and simpliferon ring are utmost essential in these cases. And I think you should have them in your armamentarium. Close follow-up and treatment of complications are important to prevent further complications. Thank you, Dr. Geeta and Dr. Swapna for highlighting on various aspects of amniotic membrane grafting and telling nitty-gritties of transplantation of amniotic membrane. I thank Dr. Aditya for presenting today's topic. You really presented well, Aditya. Many thanks to coordinators of, for today's general club, Dr. Shubha, Dr. Parul, Dr. Vaishal, and statistical experts, Dr. Maninder, for highlighting on various aspects of article. I'm also thankful to all those who have joined on virtual platform and thanks to NTOR for the technical support. Thank you so much. And we will have next. Uh, this is a Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society production. The podcast team of ophthalmologists includes Dr. Preeti Kamdar, Dr. Praveen Vyavahare, Dr. Praveen Patil, Dr. Rahul Tiwari, and myself, Dr. Mandar Paranzape. Thank you for listening.